It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Prior to podcasting, we always engage in fun banter, which inevitably it's always like, no, hit the record button, hit the record, damn it, we're going to lose this. So first of all, Sid has a tip for the ultimate hack for sustainability. It's, so he's going to share that later. I'm going to ask him later about what the number one most sustainable thing a person can do in their lives. That, so we're going to leave you on a cliffhanger listener. But before then, what do you got in that mug there, Sid? I, ho- I saw you holding up a fancy mug in our pre-show banter, and I'm curious what's in the mug and what are you fueling your day with there, brother? First of all, look at the mug. Can you see the electronic thing going on here? Okay, this is an ember. Whitney, do you know what an ember mug is? <laughs> I am very well aware and I've thought about getting one. But Sid, actually, this is a great conversation to start off with. Just for my personal sake, I don't know if the listener cares about this, but <laughs> if you drink coffee, as we're about to discuss a little bit, I think this actually should be of interest. And even if you don't, if you drink tea like Jason, if you're into matcha, this will apply. I looked into the Ember mug, Sid, because I was on a hunt to find a way to heat up water on my road trip that I did last year cross country. I came across the Ember mug and it it wasn't suitable because from my understanding, it doesn't actually heat up water. It just keeps it hot. Is that right? Like is is the point of the Ember mug that you can pour in a beverage and it keeps it warm all day? Correct. It is not a heater. It's a maintainer. But I was finding with a cup of coffee that it was just kind of, I want to just kind of hang with it a little bit. And then it just gets too lukewarm too quickly. And it's just a bummer because second note, what's in this cup is magic. I want the magic to last, which is this is home roasted by me, home roasted coffee beans that I have been, I've been roasting my own beans for like 20 years. And so this is home roasted coffee. So I don't want to, I can't, I can't waste a drop. I mean, cultures are, you know, live and die by this kind of magic. And so that's why I got the Ember mug to kind of maintain. Literally. (laughs) Yeah. To maintain this. So this is going to stay hot. I'll finish this and it won't even get cold. That's so cool. And I just sent in behind the scenes chat so Jason could see this because I'm going to link to this mug in the show notes at wellevator.com. So for the listener, if you haven't visited our website yet, if you go to W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, you'll find a transcript for this episode. You'll find the YouTube version of this episode if you're just listening to audio right now. If you're watching on YouTube, you'll find the audio version. Everything is there in the podcast section of wellevator.com, including links to everything we mentioned. We're going to talk about Sid's book, and we just talked about the Ember mug. I just sent it to Jason, and if you're watching on YouTube, you can see the expression on his face. Sid, have you seen the copper color of this mug? Because I hadn't. And the copper is absolutely stunning. Is that what you're looking at right now, Jason? I'm looking at, first of all, the copper is dead sexy. Secondly, you can 
set your temperature, customize presets, and receive notifications with your smartphone? What kind of notification do I need from my coffee mug? Good sir, your coffee has gone to an ambient temperature of 72.8 degrees. It is now ready to consume. You can also customize the voice. It just goes, your co- I don't use the app, by the way, because it's just like a nerd level that I can't, it makes me upset. And so I just, but I tried it and it's like, your coffee has reached its optimal temperature. And I'm like, I know, because I'm drinking it. I don't need like, you know what I mean? But it's, it's there if you need it. But I would totally use the app because I'm, I'm the app person, I guess, of the three of us. I track everything. Right now, I actually, on the topic of fancy technology that works with apps, my latest obsession said, that I'd love to know if you know about is the hydrate bottle. Have you heard of these? So this measures your water intake so that you can make sure you get your minimum daily requirement of water, which as you know, every body is a little bit different when it comes to how much water you need. So you use the app to set and figure out how much water you need every day based on your body and what you're doing, exercise and all that. And then this thing measures it. There's a sensor on the bottom of it. And when you place it down on a surface, it, it measures to see the weight of it to see how much water you've been drinking throughout the day. Every time you fill it, it remeasures to, and it's like, okay, I'm full now. But the coolest thing is that it lights up as a visual cue to drink your water. So I always keep this within my peripheral vision And I'll see it lighting up as a reminder if I'm not on top of it. But it's trained me. I'm so on top of drinking water. And speaking of apps, it has an app that I have connected to my watch. I can just glance down and see where I'm at at any moment's notice, how much water I've had for the day and how close I am to my water goals. It's very satisfying. That's, I hate to one-up you, I will, but I have one question first, which is, does it take into consideration what you eat? Because this is the thing, as a nutritionist, I'm on the water intake, a lot of that, like if you're eating a high salty diet, yes, movement and things like that, but also can you funnel in like, here's my basic diet, I'm Whitney and I go to McDonald's three times a day, and then it might need to adjust on that, or is it purely by activity? I don't know if their app, the Hydrate app does that. However, Hydrate app works with the health app on your iPhone, which I also use, And the health app can connect to another app where you can track your food. So if you really want to nerd out on this, Sid, you could probably find an app that increases your water intake based on things like your salt intake. So I'm sure they could all sync together and adjust on the fly. So, I mean, in all seriousness, this can be a game changer because... Jason and I talk a lot about reducing screen time, and we're very big advocates for that. That's actually part of the reason I like my watch. My watch, I just glance at. I actually, on YouTube, if you're watching, I don't know if I can position my wrist enough for for anyone to see, but this my default screen on here shows me how much I've moved my body, how much I've stood up, how many calories I've burned, how much water I've had, and I just glance at it. But I can put my watch on Do Not Disturb. So it's not giving me notifications. It's not tempting me or drawing me in. I'm not using it like I would with a phone. So I'm a really big advocate for a wrist device like this for tracking, for reminders for my health. It also reminds me to breathe on the watch. It it alerts you if you, you need to take a deep breath. You can use it for meditation. It's pretty remarkable if you want to use technology. But of course, there's drawbacks to all of that. 
So going back to your ember mug, though, Sid, I'd love to touch on coffee as a starting point because I think, A, I'm personally very interested in coffee. I wrote a book about it recently called The Mindful Mug, and it took me down this whole journey of learning about how coffee impacts us individually, but also the world and animals. And, you know, you were saying how people kind of live or die, uh, if I was quoting you correctly, of coffee. And certainly there are different ways that you can take that. There are people that love coffee so much, it feels like they can't live without it. But there's also all the people that are creating coffee, growing it and farming it and, you know, the whole production level of it. And then the the coffee roasters and all that. So I think it's a it's really cool that you're roasting your, your coffee. And I'm personally interested in that because I want to start doing that because it really impacts the quality of your coffee. So quickly, since this whole episode will not be about coffee, but I'd love to hear how long have you been roasting your coffee for? And what's what was the before and after like for someone like me who wants to actually start doing it at home? Well, I've been, honestly, I've been, and we'll get back to the screen thing, because that is interesting to me too. And I, in my coaching, use technology in very limited ways, but to remind people to take deep breaths and things like that, not automated, but we'll get into that later, because that's super interesting to me. But I've been roasting coffee for over 20 years. The short, super Cliff Notes version is I had a band, I used to be a full-time musician in LA, a band was called the Sid Hillman Quartet. And we were like a coffee drinking band. So we would smoke cigarettes and drink coffee at rehearsal. So my bass player was in the Salvation. He worked for the Salvation Army, like worked there to try to. And they were looking into opening some coffee houses as a way to bring in income for the Salvation Army. And he found out that there was like this roasting community of people roasting. And he said to me, because I've always loved coffee, he goes, you know, people roast at home. And I was like, no, that I don't. I mean, like the big, he goes, no, like little, they have little roasters. And I was like, what? And so I looked into it and sure enough, there's this whole culture of people who roast at home. By the way, we always used to roast at home. Roasted coffee buying that is relatively new. I think it started in the 1920s. Before that, people would buy the raw beans and they would put them in a fry pan dry and dry roast them, which I, by, by the way, I've done. And it works pretty darn well considering. Anyways, that's when I started. And I started roasting at home and I've been doing it for about 20 years. It is Super easy. I get fair trade, shade grown, organic beans for like six bucks a pound. And I roast in small batches every few days. And it's been incredible. And so it just, I'm like super addicted to the, I I like the process of it. I don't drink a lot of coffee, but so if I do it, I want it to be like supremely good. And hence the amber mug and the amber mug and the, you know, the roasting at home. But yeah, so that's what I've been doing. And I'm like a crazy person about it because I'm like, why can't everybody be roasting? And so then they just think that I'm like a religious convert kind of person about it, but it's so easy and so good that like you never want to drink coffee anywhere else. Like the best cups of coffee I've ever had in my whole life and I've been all through Europe have been ones that I've made myself. Nailed it. Wow. That last part really gives me a lot of excitement, Sid, because for years on my coffee journey, I was on that hunt for buying, you know, elsewhere, going to the best cafe. And I still enjoy that experience. But it's so true when you start getting into coffee, but the same, of course, is true of tea. And this can lead into our whole discussion on health today, because it's a great example of how it's such a journey. And my journey with coffee has been years and years in the making, just like anybody else's, right? But I remember a friend of mine, actually, Jason, and I have a mutual friend named Ross, who's also really into coffee. 
and he was telling me about his friends that roasted his own beans. And I was like, what? That's so extreme. And then another one of our mutual friends, Jason, Melissa, her boyfriend is really into coffee. I remember going to their house and he had all these coffee gadgets. And I was like, why do you need all this stuff? It's so simple. You know, I didn't get it. And then it was like a light bulb went off where I started learning a little bit more. And I'm just going through all those different stages of getting more and more into coffee. And when I was doing the research for my book, I it was so overwhelming. My aim was like, how can I simplify it? But it's you have to kind of learn everything in order to simplify it. As you know, Sid, but having written multiple books, it's like you go down this research rabbit hole on a topic like health or coffee or what, you know, whatever it is. And it's like there's so much information out there. And I think that's actually for authors, as all three of us are, we now have a whole nother level of respect for other authors because <laughs> the process of writing a book, it's so much. And, you know, with with this, The Mindful Mug is my most recent book, which I self-published. I think I went through that point of like, why am I even doing this? This is so much work. And somebody's going to pick it up and scroll through it and put it down, maybe in a matter of a few minutes. And I was like, the amount of work that went into that person's five-minute journey was something I poured all this passion into. It can feel frustrating at times. So I guess one leading off point for you today, Sid, is how are you feeling now that you have this book, which by the time this episode airs has already come out? How are you feeling about like basically giving birth to another project? And, and at this point, do you think you'll write another book? <laughs> yeah, I feel it's always that point where you go, I'm done. The publisher has it. And then there's that you get a, like a minute reprieve. And then you go, now I got to start like making sure it gets out there. And then, you know, wading through the mental train wreck of what if it's not well received and you know all this kind of like stuff and it's just it's like you give birth to it but you almost want it to be like 18 so that it's like leaving the house you you know because you 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 don't want to like you go go i hope i've raised you well and good luck in the world kind of thing i I, that's the mindset i want around the book is like it's out of my hands now you know and i you know like i on the screen thing like i quit all social media in 2018 because it wasn't serving me that well I'm now in a point where my, my YouTube channel, I just, if I launch a video, I, I turn off comments like right away. So I am trying to just be very focused in my work. I do think I can do another book. I have an idea for another book, not right away. But a lot of it is trying to, in a way, shield myself from the feedback. It's sort of like, it's like, if you, it's out there, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. If people hate the book, if they love the book, that's great. If they hate the book, I can't do anything about it. So the less I can be, exposed to that, the more focus I can be to maybe embark on another book. But yeah, it's a, as you know, it's a huge undertaking to write a book, <laughs> period. And it's a huge undertaking to put yourself out into the world, period. You know, you have to kind of prepare yourself for that kind of thing. And, and so it's getting maybe a little easier, but it's definitely not easy per se. Sid, I have so many questions. And the first one that comes up as an offshoot of you getting off all of social media, first of all, I want to hear about that psychological process and how it affected, if it did at all, your mental health, your sense of health, your emotional wellness, but also as an author and as a health coach and nutritionist, all the wonderful things you do to support the world. You talked about feedback and people sort of leaving these critical comments on social media. If you're off of social media and you're promoting a book, there's a few questions in one here. 
via what channels then as an entrepreneur and an author are you going to use to promote the book? Because I feel like whether one is working with a publisher or yourself published, there's a lot of pressure to leverage social media as a marketing tool. You know, whether that's Instagram or buying ads on Facebook or, you know, getting on TikTok or doing clubhouse rooms, et cetera, et cetera. So again, first question, getting off social media, why did you do it? How did it affect your mental health, your emotional wellness, your overall health in general? And B, how are you going to market the new book if social media is not really on the table for you? I'm so curious about that. Right. So first, the quitting of the social media, I like I took it to an extreme because of the work I do with uh, you know, as a small steps coach and helping people kind of not kind of manage their stress and their happiness. I find that if you can manage that first, then your choices around things like food are a lot easier and a lot more sustainable. It's, you know, my, I just read, reread Jitterbug Perfume. If you've never read that novel, I highly recommend it, but he's, I'm going to paraphrase him, but he's like, you have to prepare your mind for wisdom. And I always, I really like that idea of before you learn or before you utilize the knowledge, prepare your mind to have it come in. And so it was sort of like this idea of, if you can, and that's how I coach people manage stress so that they can then make the decisions or if they learn about food, if their stress is managed, they can enact, they can implement that knowledge in a way that doesn't burn them out and overwhelm. For me, I found social media as the balance of it was more detrimental than it was advantageous for me personally. I didn't feel good on it. I would go on a trail run and begin to go like, that's, oh, that looks good. That'd be good Instagram. That was like my first thought, not oh, let me experience this thing in the world. It was like, how would that present? I didn't like that mechanism in me. When I was writing my second book, Raising Healthy Parents, I was having a very hard time focusing. Like I could write for about five minutes and all of a sudden I'd be on YouTube or I'd be on Facebook. And just by chance in this feed on YouTube was a TED Talk by a guy named Cal Newport who wrote a book called Deep Work. If you've never read that book, I really highly recommend it. And he has no social media, nothing. By the way, his book is a bestseller with no social media. So first of all, I was like, well, it's obviously possible. Maybe it won't work for me, but it's not like you have to have it, right? So that was like my first thing. But I read while I'm trying to write my book and get it to the publisher in time, I took a little foray, read that book. And I, if I ever meet that guy, he saved that book because I shut things off. I didn't quit at that time. I quit later, but I shut things off and I was able to kind of retrain my brain to focus. I felt like I was losing focus. I couldn't sustain focus for longer than like five, 10 minutes. And it was starting to scare me. I remember telling Lisa, my wife, I was like, I don't, I, my, I cannot focus. This is like crazy. So I took it to the extreme and said, what's it going to be like if I just quit, not just stop it, but quit it, literally delete it. And I'm not joking when I tell you my hand was shaking when I was deleting my Facebook. It was like, and I was like, there's something wrong about the fact that if I get just deleting like a membership is making me twitch and be nervous for, you know, there's something kind of weird about it. So what I say in six truths, one of my truths in the new book is social media ain't social. And I want to make sure that people just have the right mindset around social media. So it's used to connect with people and that's great, but there's definitely, I've had clients who have digestive issues and they want to talk about food. And yet I'm going, you're on five hours of, of Facebook where you're arguing with people all day. Your diet's pretty good. This is a bigger picture than, <laughs> than what you're eating. You're putting yourself in a situation of vitriol and people being behaving in ways they would never behave in person. But they do it because they have the protection of the screen and everything else. And it's anger and vitriol. And I didn't like it. So what I say in the book is my career took a hit 
by quitting social media, but my happiness got a boost. And it was a trade-off that I was willing to make at, in, in that, at that time. My career took a hit. My happiness got a boost. That's gold, Sid. It's gold. Because as a tiny bit of backstory, Whitney knows this, the listeners know this because we've talked about it on previous episodes with all of the societal and health implications of social media that I have been wanting for months and months and months to just jump ship completely. And part of my hesitance has been that so much of through my own design of my career, I mean, look, if we're entrepreneurs and we're authors and we're creators as the three of us are, and many of the listeners are, there's such a deep enmeshing that for me, the fear of, oh, you know, what is this going to do to my income? What's it going to do to my career? What about all the opportunities? You know, basically FOMO, right? But you saying that gives me hope that we can sort of break through that illusion of fear that perhaps not only our self-worth, but our sense of value in society as a creator, entrepreneur, et cetera, is so deeply enmeshed in that, that we can break away from it. And I, I love that you're living that example. Cal Newport's one of our favorite authors. Uh, Whitney and I both read Digital Minimalism in the past few months, and it was very transformative with his perspectives. And then also we had a great guest who I think you would dig too, Sid. His name is Corbett Barr. And he also got off of social media. Uh, he still has his newsletter. But he just he just jumped ship. He's like, I need a reset. I need I need to reimagine my approach to this whole thing. So I love that you're yet another, I'll say, leader in that movement of breaking through the wall of fear and choosing the happiness over whatever we might sacrifice. And and you know, here you are. You're living. You're thriving. You have a new book coming out, and you know you didn't die. <laughs> like, and I want to thank you for giving that visual of your handshaking because. I have had a moment of being very close to hitting the delete button and I didn't do it because I had a similar type like, but what, what's going to happen on the other side of it? You're on the other side of it. So thank you for sharing that. And to that part B question, as you brought up Cal and his successful book and his successful work, do you even have a marketing plan with the new, with the new book? Are you just going to, you know, as Whitney's like birth it into the world and just let it be what it is and, and not really do any traditional marketing with it? Well, I, I mean, I have to promote it. And I mean, being on your show is a way to promote it. My blog is a way to promote it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm guest on a few podcasts here and there. When we open back up, I speak around the country at, at various events and veg fests and things like that. And that's, that's a tool of promotion. And that's pretty much it. And I got to tell you, like, at the time that I quit social media, I would say most of the work I was doing on there was in a way promotional. And I never found it to be super effective. I got to be honest. Like it's it. I mean, everybody's it's inundate. There's so if, if you're not there right when the Instagram post hits, it's like you're on, you, you miss it, you know? So it's not, I didn't find it super, again, it's not, I, I'm not advocating everybody quit like I did. I took it to the extreme because of the work that I do. And just as, as, as almost in a way to guinea pig myself on it. But I do think that there's better balance to be had. At the time I wrote my book, the new book, Six Truths, I was doing research on it. And one of the leading causes of death for children 10 to 19 years old in the United States right now is suicide. And some, a factor, a profound, substantial factor to that is social media, is social isolation, which is ironic because they think this is why the truth is called social media ain't social, because they're the safest they've been 
in terms of physical safety. They're not walking around the streets like people are kind of at home, but it's the social isolation that is creating anxiety, creating increased depression. And that's for kids. And I have three of them, but also for adults, I find that has been detrimental. And so it was like this kind of looking at it, like, how do, how can I negotiate my life better? And if I took away the pressure of having to be on social media, I mean, when my first book came out, everyone goes, you got to get on social media. I wasn't on Twitter at the time, but you got to get on social media. And so I lived under that pressure cloud for years until finally I was like, but do I, you know, but do I, you know, and look, I'm sure I'm not going to sell as many books maybe as if I were on social media. I don't know. And that's out of my hands. I will say I'm kind of naively in the sense of like, if you put good work out into the world, people will find it. That could be just me being a complete idiot. But at the same time, I just have that, that belief on some level that if I put a piece of good work and just kind of talk about it a little bit when I can, then it'll spread if it spreads. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And that's just the best I can do. But yeah, definitely publishers look at that stuff. How many followers do you have? Well, you know, as well as I do, you can buy followers on Facebook. I never, I never thought that was real. It seems so fake and weird that I, I love how publishers are just like, oh, yeah, 100,000 followers, whether that person bought them or not, they're just, they just buy into that right away. So I don't know. It's a, it's, a, it's a really hard question. It really, really is. We'll see how it goes. Oh, it's it's so relatable. I mean, this is like one of the biggest topics we have on our show. And actually, depending on when someone's listening to this, I guess the timeline is, is different. But but in early 2021, Jason and I talked about this movie called Childhood 2.0, which is, to me, required viewing for parents especially parents that haven't really dug into this. I know like some people can feel inundated by technology. I saw that movie. It really opened my eyes to things like you're saying, Sid, about what kids are going through with technology. And I said on that episode that I was going to be very dedicated to educating myself. And now it's part of my daily research. I go and I try to learn or tune into at least one thing that kids are going through right now so that I can stay aware and I can stay active. And I'm part of this Facebook group now. I'm not a parent, but it's called um, Parenting in a Tech World. I will link to that. It is so eye-opening. I think there's, speaking of numbers, over 100,000 people in there. But unlike what you were talking about, Sid, they're actually active and there's actually great information in there and people will respond and I just go on and, and almost every single day and read about what parents are going through and the questions they're asking and the experiences they're having. And it's it's really been eye-opening for me. And I think it's an incredibly important topic because part of this conversation is that we can't just focus on ourselves and our bubble. We have to know what's going on. And I really didn't know what was going on with children. Just like I, I didn't know what was going on with racism for the most part. I was pretty ignorant. I was in my little safe bubble being a white woman you know and and that's one of our big aims on this show is to really step outside of our bubble or at least just view look outside of our bubble because people are going through different experiences and i think one of the big issues i've seen with social media is there's so much anecdotal evidence oh well this worked for me so it's going to work for you this is true with health too so we can certainly explore this from many different angles today but but that anecdotal evidence is now driving me absolutely crazy. And I used to be someone that would use a lot of anecdotal evidence too, but I'm really trying not to. I will own the fact that it's my experience, but I'm not going to assume that my experience is somebody else's. I think that is incredibly detrimental. And 
One thing that came up for me on this social media element actually uh, yesterday as of the date that we're recording this today is March 15th. On March 14th, 2021, I was in a clubhouse room that was discussing social media. (laughs) It got me so activated because it was just the same people reiterating these sound bites over and over again. And it was like everybody was yes anding each other, you know? And one thing that I really wanted to contribute, but didn't even have the opportunity to contribute because everyone was talking over each other the whole time. I was just like, (laughs) that's when I start to step away, like kind of back to one of your points, Sid. It's like social media platforms in general, a lot of people wanting their opinions to be heard and not necessarily taking into consideration that A, not everybody has that experience, but it's like we either look for opportunities to argue or we look for opportunities not to argue. But it's it's kind of like, can we find more of that in-between area where we have a discussion with each other and we really listen to what other people are saying without waiting for a chance to speak? One book I'm reading right now is called The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. And it's based on the this idea of, it, there's another book called Finite and Infinite Games. And he makes a lot of really good points in there. It's it's overall about business, but I think it can be attributed to a lot of things. One of the things he says is that true value cannot be measured by arbitrary me- metrics. And in my opinion, numbers are meaningless if they're not creating connection. So if we play this infinite game, we start to view life as no finish line and no winners, which I also think is something for you to talk about because you do so much running. And I wonder, you know, it's like, when you're when you're you know doing something like running i i often think like it's all about getting to the finish line or it's all about being the winner being the best it's a marathon you know not a sprint all these different mentalities that we hear i'm really a big advocate for creating content that resonates and advances your cause versus creating content just because you want to get something from it and i think that's made a huge detriment i think that's the reason these mental health issues are getting worse and worse is because these teenagers they're so susceptible to what other people think of them. You know, like that's just part of being a teenager. I think you're trying to figure out your place in the world. And when you go have this access to something that's constantly comparing you to other people, and then you become so obsessed with metrics and measuring up and being a winner, getting to this finish line, us as adults know it's hard enough to balance all of that mentally. You know, like that journey that you're on, Sid, of not using social media, thats that can feel really challenging when everybody's constantly saying, get on social media. You need to have social media. You're missing out. As Jason was saying, the FOMO is really tough. So I want to commend you for doing that. And I think this is such an important dialogue. And I'd love to hear your perspective on, on finite versus infinite. And if you've dug into that at all, Sid, but even if not, I'm sure these words resonate with you about playing more of the long game and not looking at it as a constant goal and finish line and winners versus losers. Yeah, I there's, I mean, well, that's a lot. There's a lot that you just said. <laughs> and so I'll wade through as much as I can. I, I use ultra running as a metaphor for lots of things because I was very attracted to when I fell into ultra running, it was like, I'm so not an ultra runner. Like joked about this on my own podcast recently. I'm like, anybody who would meet me would be like, you're totally not an ultra runner. I'm not just, that's just not my thing. And yet I love it. To me, it's 
90% of ultra running is showing up to the starting line, not the finish. The reason I like it so much is because only about seven people care about winning the race. Most people want to finish it and they don't even really care about the times because different runs are so different. The terrain is so different to races that just because you did it one race in seven hours doesn't mean you can do another race anywhere near that because it's about particular to the race. So it's, it really is about the process. It's just about being outside and being on a trail, being focused, because if your mind wanders when you're on a trail, you fall. So it's sort of less like for, in a good way, forced meditation, forced presence, forced attention. There's so much I love about that as far as that goes. But yeah, the other stuff, I don't know. You know, it's you, like I said, you said a lot. To me, I've talked about there's FOMO, fear of missing out. But I have also talked about JOMO, the joy of missing out. And I think that we think there's one thing that you're missing out on when you don't do this thing, but you're not realizing, not you, I just mean the royal us, not realizing there's, by missing out on some stuff, you're experiencing other stuff. It's not like you give up social media and now you're sitting in a vacuum with nothing happening. It's just that I started reading books for crying out loud, like physical books. You know, like there was there was much more. I'm reading five books right now. I was like, why can't I read multiple books at the same time? Like, why do I have to read one novel? And so I have a stack of books and I read a few pages out of House of Spirits that I'm reading right now. And I put that down. I pick up Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. I, re I read that for a few minutes and and I'm reading more than I, I have in years because it's say I wrote, a, I've written a whole albums worth of new music that happened when i quit social media all of a sudden and i used to do music full time all of a sudden i'm like i got my stuff back i've got I, i'm my guitar i'm gonna start writing i start writing again and it started coming and i realized that it was plugging me up in a way that was detrimental to use your word it, like it was detrimental it was it was a mental taking up too much mental real estate. It wasn't like I was on social media for hours a day, but it was taking up mental real estate. And when I removed that from my life, it was like the joy of missing that out because it opened up all this other stuff that I've been doing ever since. And by the way, writing another book and becoming an oxygen you know, breathing coach that I've just become, finished an instructor training for, for breathing coaching and, and running, like all this kind of stuff opened up. So it was like removing that, Fear of missing that out, fine, that went away. And then all of a sudden, new stuff has, has presented. And I think that that was, a for me, ultimately, it was a good move. And so, you know, who knows? Okay, you just got certified as a breathing coach. Tell us more about that, because I have a mental picture of what that might mean, but I want some nitty-gritty details. Said, what's that all about? Yeah, so I'm a nutritionist. You guys know that I became certified as a running coach. So I, I was because I'm into running, and people, were, a lot clients were asking me about it, but I wasn't didn't have the training I wanted. So I be, that happened, and I kind of I've been doing the Wim Hof breathing for three years and eight about three years and eight months, literally every day, cold therapy and, and the Wim Hof thing. So I've been interested in breathing, and then I read a book recently. You guys, I'm sure you know about it called Breath by James Nestor, a really good book. And in that book, talking about carbon dioxide and how it's necessary and not a waste product the way that we've thought about it kind of opened my eyes. I thought it was kind of weird. And I saw it as a good, really good fill out. I've been saying to clients for years, take a deep breath. You know, I'll text them deep breath, having them set alarms like Whitney was talking about deep breath. So I've, I've instinctually kind of been in this place of where does breath fold into the overall living healthy and happy kind of thing. My first book's called Approaching the Natural. So there was a very much of an idea of like to return to more a natural way to breathe. I found a program called the it's called Oxygen Advantage. It's owned by this guy named Patrick McEwen or however he's an Irish guy. 
And I thought this is, and so I was researching different things and that was the one that made the most sense. It's all about functional breathing. I, I still do the Wim Hof, but that's a, I see it as a very different approach to breathing. It's a short-term kind of hormetic stress kind of thing, whereas oxygen advantage is how to build in functional breathing over time through some exercises and things like that. Very applicable to athletes, but I'm more of a regular person kind of coach. I'm, I'm, I want I work with people who are like regular folk. <laughs> That's my like day to day, living better day to day. And so oxygen advantage. So I I went, I took his course and it was incredible. And I've, I'm working with my first two clients right now and, and absolutely loving it. To me, it, it plays into the idea of, again, managing overall stress, strengthening your body by keeping stress levels managed most of the time, little spikes, but in general, most of the time and how that translates that into, you know, better choices that we want to make that are more in line with who we are individually in our lives. And it's been incredible really, really dig it. So yeah, that's kind of, I, those are my three prongs, like nutrition, fitness, and breathing all kind of together as one big package. Other than your running, I'm curious if as a vocalist and a singer that these breathing techniques have assisted with breath support with these new songs that you're writing, has that affected your music and your vocals at all? So I think long-term that could possibly happen, but I will tell you this, I have Transition completely to nasal breathing, which for years, well, my whole life has been mouth breathing only. So this is going to be weird if we don't want to talk about nerdy. I've been taping my mouth shut for about the last four months and have been able to transition where the first couple nights, well, more than a couple nights, the first couple weeks, I would wake up at some point in the middle of the night and go kind of like, whoa, and take the tape off and then go back to sleep and breathe through my mouth. But now for about the last two months, I've just, I just tape my mouth shut and I breathe through my nose during the entire time when I'm running hundred percent nasal breathing. You tape your mouth shut when you're sleeping. Correct. Okay. Got it. Yes. I have heard of that. I'm so glad that you brought this up because <laughs> all jokes aside, I heard that actually could help with snoring too. Oh. So I, it was coming up in research, but it's so interesting to, to hear. I would love to learn more about this. Yeah, not only snoring, but everything else. Um, it, it's incredible. And and now during all exercise, I'm nasal breathing. Like during my, during my runs, I just, I, I nasal breathe. When you nasal breathe, you're naturally going to slow down your breath. You just, through your mouth, you can go, like take a quick breath. You can't really do that nasal wise. And so by closing your mouth, you are slowing your breath down. You're allowing a little more CO2 to build up in the blood between breaths. We're over breathing in our kind of stressful culture and we're blowing out too much CO2. And so I'll I'll condense this into literally 10 seconds. But when you don't have enough CO2 in your bloodstream, you can have a lot of oxygen floating and attached to your hemoglobin. It won't release into your tissues in the absence of substantial amount of CO2. So when CO2 increases and you allow it to increase just enough, it'll trigger the release of the oxygen from the hemoglobin into the tissues. That's really what we want. We want the oxygen to go into the tissues. But because we're over-breathing, we get all this air, all this oxygen in, but not enough CO2 because we're blowing out too much CO2. So the oxygen is sticking in our bloodstream and not releasing. So by transitioning to nasal breathing and, and through various exercises, you're allowing CO2 to be at a higher level in general, and therefore in general are increasing oxygenation of the tissue. So that's what these exercises are all geared toward doing is to allow is to actually desensitize your body to CO2. So allow more CO2 in your bloodstream at all times. And that allows for more efficiency of oxygenation. It's been super, I've been doing it every day myself for about five months and I definitely see a transition. I have my running pacing has gone up. My sleep has gotten better. No snoring gone. 
completely gone. My wife too, she started taping her mouth shut (laughs) and gone and she's been sleeping better. So yeah, lots of improvement in that regard. I'm curious if, if in public, Sid, you have gone out with your mouth taped and been like, I'm wearing a mask. This is my, what do you mean? I put a mask on my, I'm wearing, look at this. This is my tape mask. Has that been an, an attempt? No. Well, what did happen <laughs> is that one morning my mouth was taped and it's it's a little like you're like a First Amendment activist at all times. Like you're just kind of taping your mouth shut like to, you know, to protest. But that's kind of what you look like. Anyway, my dog got up a little too early one morning, about four mornings ago and jumped out of bed. And I was like, because my mouth was taped shut. Right. So I'm like, and so she's like screwing up or something. She's like running out of the room. And so I ripped the tape off just kind of without thinking about it and pulled skin off my bottom lip. So like there is a danger. So just be aware. I was like, rip. And I went, Oh God. And I was like super painful. So yeah, that, that happened. But usually because we're wearing masks, I can kind of keep my mouth shut. I don't tape during the day, but at night I definitely do. What brand of tape or type of tape do you use, though? Because, you know, that also is another big question. I've seen their special tape, I believe that like, I don't know if it's gimmicky, but is there a type that you use? Is there a name brand? Is there what can you look out for? And we'll link to this in the show notes too at wellevator.com. We'll we'll share, uh, I guess, on Amazon or something. (laughs) Yeah, my I've done a lot of research and I've tried about five different ones. My favorite one, and I'm not tied to anybody financially, so there's no I'm not selling it. It's called Simply Breathe. The one that I ripped off my mouth and actually tore my lip was was 3M uh, Micro Pore Tape, which some people use. My wife uses it and it's fine. It, I tried it the other day. I was like, well, maybe try that again. And it's just too sticky for my skin or whatever. So Simply Breathe is the one that I use most often. It's like just sticky enough, stays on all night, but it's easy to take off in the morning. So there's a bunch out there. It's it's definitely kind of a new frontier of, of breathing. And, and even just the background of like in children, the jaw structure, the development of our jaws and nasal passages and things like that by when you grow up mouth breathing versus nasal breathing is significant. So parents are, you know, urging, I'm urging parents to kind of like help their kids turn into nasal breathing if they're mouth breathing right now, just because of what can, you know, transpire later with regard to their exercise and oxygenation, everything else is pretty cool. It's pretty cool habit to get into. I just didn't do it early on. And so I've had to, in a way, break that habit. I think I'm probably going to end up taping forever because when I've tried to not tape, I just go right back to mouth breathing. Like it's 50 years of, of that habit. So I think I'm just kind of most nights I'm going to be taping my mouth shut forever, (laughs) but that's okay. Wow. I just looked up simply breathe. They're actually not on Amazon, which is kind of cool because Jason and I try to, to recommend products off of Amazon. Do you buy them directly through their website? I'm wondering where we should link to, or do you buy, are they available in stores too? I just get it from their website. It's definitely not on Amazon. And I just purchase it from Simply Breathe, whatever the website is. Yeah. Done. All right. I want to go back to a question that has been lingering for like 40 minutes from the beginning of this podcast, going back to coffee as an example of something that I think about all the time. The three of us obviously are very much into research and looking at data and looking at studies. And also clearly the three of us are life experimentalists. I mean, that was a gem you just shared about taping your mouth shut, Sid. It's really something I want to look into too. And if we go back to coffee as an example of, you know, experiments and bioindividuality and what works for one body and one person might not work for the other. I love the taste of coffee. I absolutely, I love it. I love the ritual of it. I love the taste. 
and I've tried a lot of different varieties of it. And in fact, I had a, my last like coffee phase was when I was writing my first book, Eternity. And most of those late night writing sessions were powered by some form of coffee. But as I started to really listen to my body and become more sensitive and more self-aware, I realized that I was, it was really rocking me in a way that did not feel good to the sense that on the one hand, it was giving me energy to write and create. Also great for pooping, by the way, great for regularity. But I would find that, and I'm curious, Sid, if you have any input on this and Whitney too, because you've researched this, whether it was my adrenal glands or my endocrine system, something in my body, for lack of a scientific term, felt cracked out. And every time I would drink coffee, whether it was low acid, whether it was fair trade, whether it was shade grown, whether it was organic, no matter what varietal or style of coffee, I always felt just like I was on crack, just nuts. Like, And I'm already a pretty high energy guy. So the reason I stopped drinking coffee was because on an energetic level, I found that it made me very anxious. It increased my stress. I was kind of just on edge all day, even though I was, quote, productive. I couldn't really wind down from that coffee high. So for my body, I stopped drinking it, not because I didn't like the taste. I love the taste and the ritual. But my body was like, dude, you have to stop this. This is like, this is not sustainable. So A, I'm curious, what is it that's going on in the human body in terms of chemical processes that creates that effect? And why are some people like myself so much more sensitive to jitters and crash and anxiety than others? I really don't know. And I'm curious what, what you've both found in your research on this. I'll go first and Whitney, you jump in. Um, I'm going to get this chemical wrong. I think it's called adenosine, ad adenosine, the effect of coffee in the body. I do know that it absolutely affects people differently. A couple things that I want to say about it. One, I have moved in the last couple of years to drinking coffee only in the morning, and I limit myself to about one or two cups total. And the reason is, is because in the research I've done about sleep is that even, and I, I'm the kind of guy, when I was at UCLA, I could drink coffee to, at like 11 o'clock at night and just go right to sleep. And while some people can drink caffeine late and still go to sleep, it does affect the quality of sleep, how specifically deep sleep, what they call NREM. And so even though caffeine, you can go right to sleep, go, I slept eight hours, it may not be the best quality of sleep. So I, I have moved my coffee intake to first thing, in the, I'm like done with caffeine by like 10 or 1030. And I've actually felt once I was able to wean myself off that afternoon coffee, I actually have more energy in the afternoon than I ever did before when I was drinking coffee. So I don't know what that did. I do know that there, there's like a natural boost of adrenaline, sort of cortisol, like from about 830 to 930 in the morning and again in the in the afternoon. And so I kind of like let my body get up with sort of the natural hit. I'll have a couple cups of coffee first on the early side of the day, and then I'm done with caffeine. A couple things to note that I always tell people, the darker the roast, the less caffeine. That's sort of like the, the opposite of what people think. So, they, But the reason why the hipsters love light roast coffee and medium roast coffee is because it jacks the crap out of you. And I'm like old school, dark roast, less caffeine. So I'm just going to throw that out there and it also freaking tastes better. But anyways, but yeah, so dark roast is actually less caffeine. So so it's it's kind of interesting. I think people are getting a little more caffeinated than they might think because they're sticking to a lighter medium roast. That's all I'd say about that. But yeah, so for me, moving it up to the first part of the day so that by the time I go to bed, that caffeine is sort of out of my system completely. And I have felt that my sleep has improved as a result of that. And that and the mouth taping. See, it's all fallen into place, but it's all kind of that same kind of deal. 
I mean, there's not much more for me to add except that I started to become really mindful about the coffee and that I was drinking specifically and and how it was making me feel cuz you know, some coffee is is more acidic and, you know, the light roast versus dark roast. I actually didn't know that until, until I started writing my book because it seems counterintuitive, right? I've always liked really rich coffee. And so I would assume that like dark, dark roast meant that it was going to be really, really rich. And sometimes, it, I mean, this, this is a complicated thing. <laughs> I'm also, Sid, one thing I didn't mention, I'm mostly a cold brew drinker. So, cause I like really intense tasting coffee. I like and mostly because I don't drink it black. I always mix it with some sort of milk and I'm very curious to see if you're the same way. I absolutely love experimenting with different plant-based milks. That's like one of my favorite things to do when I go to a grocery store is I check and see, is there a new plant-based milk? Is there a new plant-based creamer? Is there a new plant-based half and half? (laughs) All of that. I love playing with the ratios. Like that's so fun because I don't really enjoy black coffee unless it's like espresso or something or every once in a while like a nitro cold brew I'm really into but it's it's funny I rarely drink warm coffee and that's probably another reason I'm not into the ember so anyways to answer your question Jason I've been experimenting with like the amounts of coffee I'm drinking every day the timing that I drink it which coffee I'm drinking how do I brew it too And I found that my body takes a little time to adjust as well. There is the beans that I have right now are pretty intense. And the first time I use them to make cold brew at home, I felt awful. I was like, I felt nauseous. I felt like a lot of things that you're describing. And then I started experimenting with the ratios that I was brewing my coffee. And I also started easy working my way into it to build up some tolerance and really paying attention to like when I had it, how much I had, what was I eating. There's a lot of like alchemy, I suppose, going into coffee. And it's not just as easy as as picking it up and how much, you know, just like drinking coffee. I think for some people think that's what it is. Like they just drink coffee. And some people, I'm sure Sid can agree with this too. Like They don't care where their coffee comes from. They don't care who makes it. Like it's just coffee to them. They're just drinking it to get by. And my experience of coffee is very much tied into the ethical side of it and all the elements that go into it. But also like how does it taste and how does it make me feel and what time of day, like all of these factors, it has become an art form and increased my awareness of of how it's affecting me and other people. For me, I drink coffee. I'm like a, I drink coffee black. I'm pretty simple. Like I don't, I don't really think about it too much. And I totally get where you're coming from because I've gone down that rabbit hole of coffee. I use the AeroPress now, which was like my travel. When I'm speaking around the country, I was like, I need a good travel one. And now I just use it all the time. It's like my favorite. I make one for my wife and one for me in the morning. That's like my thing. So I'm pretty simple that way. Super high quality beans, like I said, and I roast my own. Rare will I ever have a coffee out and about if it's not going to be good. Like I love coffee, but I'm not to the point where I'll just drink it from 7-Eleven. I'll be like, I don't need coffee today because it's it's like not I'm not it's not worth giving right. me, giving, giving up like a good. I'm not going to take that chance. You know what I mean? Like it's either going to be good coffee. Or I'm not going to have it at all. I have two follow up questions to that. Go ahead. Sid. Go ahead. I want to know a 
There is an art form, and I tried to verbalize this when I was writing my book and actually found it really hard. How do you know if it's going to be good coffee or not? Unless you're reading the reviews and get a recommendation. And I really found, for the most part, I'm curious if you agree, Sid, that you can really judge a book by its cover when it comes to a coffee shop. There are visual cues I look for, and I I had to really become conscious of what they were that alert me whether it's going to be good coffee beyond like whether or not it says it's organic, fair trade, shade grown, or, you know, if they're if they're roasted in house, that's usually a very good sign. But I started taking note of the smells of the coffee shop, the machines that they're using, the energy that the baristas are giving off, the people in there. Like there's so many factors that you can take in. Just I can walk up to a coffee shop and almost guarantee I'm going to know what that coffee is going to be like by those cues. Do you agree with that? Or are you not as into that side if you're going to get your coffee from someone else? I 100% agree with you. Uh, because here's why. Because I think if somebody pays a, te- I think you can judge lots of things by the cover. I think that you can't judge a book by its cover. I think you can judge most books by their cover. And here's why. Because if you know that they're paying attention to like the furniture in a coffee house, right? The aesthetic of it. How cool is it? If they're paying attention on that level, there's at least a better chance that they're actually paying attention to the quality of the coffee. I will defend that stance till the cows come home because it doesn't guarantee good coffee, but you're increasing the chances that it's good because they give a crap about the other stuff. And so, and just like on a wine bottle, if if it's really well designed and it's just this beautiful thing, there's a pretty good chance that the wine inside is going to be from the same ethic of like, this is a higher quality kind of deal. So I'm totally into that. I completely agree. Yes. It makes us crazy, Whitney. Oh but my it's God. True. This, I think it's true. <laughs> it brings me so much joy because I'm always paying attention to it because coffee is such a love of mine. And it's it's interesting, Sid, because this actually makes it easier to not drink coffee at cafes because it is rare that a coffee like shop meets every single checkbox that I look for. I don't want to waste my time or money or intake on bad coffee. And and everybody has d- their own versions of bad coffee, but it's it's so not worth it to me. I'm also the same way when it comes to buying bottled coffee. Every time I go to the grocery store, I look in, at their coffee section. You can usually judge by the bottle because a coffee company that really puts a lot of effort into the label, as you're saying with wine, there's a very good chance it's going to be good coffee. But of course, you can turn it over and you can read about it. And if they print like their story or details, if they have their sourcing, if they include all that information, and same goes with buying beans, is that really growing your awareness about what the labels mean, which again, was another inspiration for me writing my book, The Mindful Mug, was was that it's so confusing. My dad is a great example. He loves the AeroPress, by the way, Sid. We talk about the Aero- I don't have one, but every time I go visit my family, I get so excited to use my dad's AeroPress. <laughs> I'm perfectly fine with my um, my French press because I just use it to make my cold brew right now. But the AeroPress is really fun to use and such a great tool. And my dad has not gotten into beans yet. He just got his first like really nice coffee grinder. My sister and I gave it to him as a as a birthday present, I think, in 2021. But the beans are tricky. And I think it's because it's overwhelming for people. You know, like all these things we're talking about. And, and Jason might just be 
bored out of his mind at the moment, but really a good coffee will list and disclose and be very transparent and also probably put some effort into their design for all these reasons we're mentioning, Sid. And so beyond like the taste, there's so many factors in that transparency that are important. And it's sad to me that coffee, tea, food, beverages, like just what we consume in general has become so overwhelming and confusing to people. And I think that's actually why judging something by its cover is important because if somebody puts the effort into it, they're actually making the experience a little bit easier than for somebody who like doesn't know what to do. Like if you're drawn to a pretty package, maybe you'll buy it and it'll happen to be really high quality. But the other element is price too. And that I think that's that's the biggest thing that comes up when it comes to coffee, tea, food, drinks. Like so many people are are afraid to spend money on things, even if that ends up being a high, a much higher quality experience for you and others in the long run. So that's something I'd love to touch upon with you, Sid, too, is that relationship you have with spending money on high quality food and beverage. But also your clients, like what do you find with people when it comes to making purchasing decisions? Because along with all the things we're talking about, it's it's generally not cheap. Like the Ember mug is expensive. The Hydrate bottle is expensive. The Apple Watch is expensive. Like all of these things that we have chosen to purchase for the, our long-term health or our preferences add up. And I think a huge roadblock for many people is how much does it cost and is it worth it for me? So I'd love to hear how you approach that personally and with your clients. Yeah. Well, I argue people, people always go, it's so expensive to eat healthy. And I, and so I have a couple things to say about that. There's ways to do it cheaply, much cheaper for sure. Exercise is a perfect example. Like I run, sometimes I run barefoot, like literally barefoot. So it t- costs me nothing. I'll just go out the door and I'll, I buy one pair of shoes a year, you know, tops. So there's ways to be healthy that don't cost a lot of money. That goes for food too. But on the other hand, I also go, look what you're... It's hard to compare a Big Mac and a cucumber because you go, the Big Mac's way cheaper, but you don't get as much with a Big Mac. And so this is... It's like you can't, you get what you pay for. You do get what you pay for. When you buy healthy food... I, you know, I work at the Stanford Inn and Resort. I, I, I run the wellness center there. We get criticized sometimes because our, you know, the food's expensive. It's like, it's organic. And it's incredibly high quality. You can't apples to apples between that and even another plant-based restaurant that's not organic and that's buying cheaper food. So it part of it is this ethic of like, you get what you pay for, spend the money on things. I find that it's an allocation problem. It's an allocation issue more than it is an overall cost issue. There are things I don't spend money on. I don't have a gym membership, for instance. I do, we don't have TV. I don't have a direct TV. People are spending 150 bucks a month in direct TV. Well, to me, I just, you know, spend more money on the health. I've just sort of prioritized health as the thing that if we don't have that, the rest of the stuff doesn't really matter as much. So to me, it's allocating your resources to say, okay, well, this is a prior, you know, it's that Gandhi quote, action expresses priority. Like where are you spending your money? Because that'll be kind of to make you realize what your priorities are. So Maybe it's slightly more expensive to eat healthy, but you get more from eating healthy. And I don't spend money in Tylenol and Pepto-Bismol. My family takes no drugs over the counter or prescription, like nothing. So there's less money allocated to the effects of bad eating 
because we spend a little bit more money up front on eating healthy most of the time. So for me, that is, it's like to appreciate quality, have less stuff, but higher quality stuff, I guess is, is kind of how I would look at it. Instead of having 18 pairs of shoes, having two that are really nice quality that last you for a long time, that cost a little more money, less waste in the world, et cetera, et cetera. When it comes to specifically to coffee, I will say that's why I'm such a huge fan of roasting. I know which farms I'm getting my beans from. Like I, I, there's a company in, in LA that I've been using for 20 years. Again, I'm not connected to them. They're called the P- Coffee Project. They lay out exactly where the farm comes from, the backstory of those beans, you know, exactly where they're sourced from. They're fair trade. They're, they have relationships with independent small farms. And then those beans come over and I buy those beans and I roast them myself. I'm very connected to it. And it's seven bucks a pound or whatever. It's, it's like way cheaper because I'm doing the roasting for myself. And it, by the way, less packaging because I get 15 pound bag all at once. And then I just put it in my closet and I roast in small batches. So there's ways to do things that kind of lower overall cost and maintain the highest quality possible. But, but again, I think when it comes to healthy living and happy living, it's, you do get what you pay for and, and, and ask yourself like, where are you, where are you spending your money? Cause there's probably ways you can shave a little bit here, a little bit there and allocate a little bit more to the, to the healthier behaviors more often than not. I can't believe this hasn't been brought up yet in this episode for any YouTube watchers sid is wearing a shirt that says nutty nut nut period now my mind goes to sid's either invested in a trail mix business he's either has a macadamia farm in hawaii or he's encouraging healthy ejaculation we don't know which one it is so it could be all three i don't want to assume sid what does nutty nut nut mean on your t-shirt i'm actually dying to know well first of all i'll you just earned yourselves nutty nut nut t-shirts that are coming to you from me. But I made this shirt. This is a Sid Hillman. This is a What Sid Thinks podcast shirt, nutty nut nut. I use the term nutty nut nut for years and I don't know where... Well, I have two really good... Two of our best friends in Los Angeles. It originated in our group. We, I actually don't know who started it, but nutty nut nut just means kind of nutty, weird. So in my podcast for years, even my first one, Approaching the Natural Podcast, and now the new one, What Sid Thinks, I'll, 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 it just comes out. I'll be like, I just read something super nutty nut nut, or this guy is a total nutty nut nut. And it's just a term that I've used. You can have good nutty nut nuts that are like, you know, weird, like we are weird doing weird stuff. And, and, you know, and then there's like the nutty nut nuts that are not the good nutty nut nuts. And so, and so then my cousin in LA bought me this for my birthday, which is a nutty nut 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 holder because it's become a thing. So yeah, nutty nut nut. It's just like, I don't know. It's a term I use and it's sort of defining when I made this shirt years ago, I sold out of them right away. So there was other nutty nut nuts out there. They were like, oh my God, nutty nut nut shirts. And they started buying them up. So I've had them ever since. So that's the story behind that. I mean, it would seem to me that there's a organic heirloom roasted nut butter business that wants to be born from this. Call me crazy, but I mean, and I'm sure you've considered this, but that if I saw a really cool label, since we're talking about aesthetics and we're talking about, you know, judging a a book or a label by its cover, if I saw a nut butter called Nutty Nut Nut and it was fun and vibrant and cool, I'd probably buy that nut butter. Just saying, just saying. Not that you need another thing on your plate, Sid. Clearly, you have, you know, arms like Shiva balancing all the things in your life. But as a consideration, a Nutty Nut 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 Butter, Nutty Nut 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 Butter. There's a theme song there too, Sid. Come on, get on it, Sid. I'm hoping that Jason will do one of his impromptu jingles. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Jason. If you were to make a nutty nut nut jingle for Sid, what would it sound like? 
You'd be like, nutty nut 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 butters, taste so good they'll make your eyes flutter, best nuts in the entire world, taste so good that you'll never hurl, nutty nut nut, nutty nut nut. I don't know. I just pull stuff out of my ass. Not bad, though. Not bad. I thought that was excellent. And then not available on Amazon or something like that. Not available. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I love said that you're you're embracing, you know, the, the fun side of this, because I, I think one thing over the years of doing this, and I'm, I'm curious if you both agree or disagree, this might get uncomfortable, maybe you disagree, is that so much of the health and wellness field sometimes can be so serious. We're talking about healing and we're talking about, you know, detox and we're talking about colonics and we're we're talking about getting rid of the parasites and everything's very serious. And I remember when I got into the business, that was my overall perception of it. It's like everyone's so fucking serious about this stuff. Like, why can't it be fun and joyful and make jokes? And I just think your approach to it, Sid, is on that line of like, yes, healing can be a very serious thing sometimes and and people taking responsibility for their own health and wellness. But why can't it be fun? I mean, I think joyfulness and fun should be a part of this conversation. And I'm curious if I assume your clients work with you because they like you. Obviously, they come to you for your wisdom, your experience, your perspective, the guidance you give them. But I'm sure people want to work with you because you're you. Would, would that be an apt assertion too? Is they, they actually like you because you're you and want to work with you specifically because of your approach? I mean, I hope so. I, I do. If you look at my YouTube videos and listen to any work I've ever done and even read my books, whether you like the comedy or not, there's comedy there. I think that's why I liked you guys when I first met you whenever, how many years ago. It's like, if you don't come into this for lightness of being... I did a podcast episode recently called The Bearable Lightness of Being. You know, it's like, this is a, a light and... F- or I don't want to say should because it's I don't like the word should generally, but I think people come to it initially because of they want to feel better and be happier. I think that's a pretty simplistic way of looking at it. That's 100% correct. And I think what happens is, as the more I spoke around the country is, even in the vegan plant-based world, a lot of militancy, a lot of rigidity, a lot of measuring and counting and weighing and and just all about obsessive kind of in that deep at the expense of living a happy, fun life. So I think for sure with my clients, they do come to me because they know me already. Like they've seen me on the videos, like there's comedy and again, could be a failure comedy, but that's my attempt is to bring that to all the work that I do. Well, when I'm on stage, I'm ad-libbing and cracking jokes. I'm, I'm trying to lighten the mood because if we go to 1,500 lectures on heart disease and the effects of plant-based diet on heart disease, that's great information. It's there. It's real. It's science. It's awesome. But let's not forget that we are making a choice to live better and to be happier. And that means fun and joy and using food sometimes for pleasure, but other times as a tool to make us feel good and to be able to do cool stuff and a lot of it and as much of it as we can. And that means being present with our families and friends and and all those things that we can do when we feel good. And I think humor is an absolute crucial part of that. And so, yeah, that's the nutty, like that's the good part of Nutty Nut Nut that I talk about all the time is like, I love Nutty Nut Nuts. I love people that are weird and into weird stuff. I love, my wife goes, you like attract the weirdest people. I'm like, I know, I love it. I'm always the guy in the gym that like the weird dude that everybody avoids, he'll come up to me and I'll be like, yes, let's get this done right away. Cause it's like interesting, you know, I don't have to talk about the weather, you know, it's like, it's, that's the fun part of like, you know, being alive, I think. So I think more, more power to people like that, you know? 
Okay, so I want to talk about something that you hit on, Sid, when you were talking about going on tour and and meeting the vegans and the plant-based and how how strict and militant they can be. I feel like purity culture, we've talked about this in previous episodes, a very puritanical, clean, almost perfectionist culture is a part of the health and wellness industry, right? It is, is I need to drink my alkaline water and I need to do my 8.5% pH colonics, my coffee colonics. And, you know, I need to swap out my blood like Keith Richards and whatever. There's a million different things. Like we know people that are, are so a type about all of this. And I want to talk about sort of the, the flip side of purity culture, which is the topic of vices and that one can eat organic and exercise and meditate and do whatever the thing is for their own personal regimen, but but maybe they have a vice or two. And I certainly have my vices, and I've gone through a journey of having people over the years kind of shame me for them, like, oh, but but you know, you you're this public figure and you write these books and you do these things and you know you eat this way and you live this way, but you do these one or two things that are like quote not healthy for you. And so I'm curious from both of your perspectives. What would you do? You have vices, both of you, Sydney or Sid, Sydney and Sydney and Wit, <laughs> Sid and Whitney. Do you have things you consider vices? And to live a sort of full human experience or a balanced experience, do you feel that vices can be good? And it, it comes up to me because I, I see people shaming people for drinking coffee. I see that, like, oh, you know, coffee's bad for you, and wine's bad for you, and cannabis is bad for you, and this thing's bad for you, and you shouldn't eat gluten. And you know, there's a million examples. I could go ad nauseum on this. Vices are they good? Are they an important part of the human experience? And if so, why do humans gravitate toward them? And is there such a thing as a healthy vice? Go. Okay, here's my approach. I am working with people and trying to spread a message of self-care. And by that, I mean, it's an, I look at it as an ethic and maybe it's because I was a, my bachelor's degrees in philosophy, but this is entirely what the new book is about. It's an ethic of self-care. It's a right or wrong to me. I self-care. What that means is that self-care can be things like healthy eating to make you feel good, but self-care can also be having a glass of wine with somebody because that feels good too. So I really want to try to change the conversation around vices per se, to say this, self-care, take care of yourself. That means having fun. I was on a panel one time in Texas, the Marshall, Texas thing, and I was sitting next to Howard Jacobson. You guys know who that is? He co-wrote Proteinaholic and the word, uh, the book Whole, Howard Jacobson. He's, a, he's an author. He, wrote, he co-wrote it with, with uh, Garth Davis. Anyways, PhD, super smart guy. And we're sitting on this panel and there's about six other people. And this, this person in the, in the audience raises a hand. She says, hey, what do you guys think about red wine? Well, the microphone was grabbed by this celebrity chef and, and she said, never drink red wine, never drink red wine. And then this other doctor grabbed the microphone and she said, I not, I shit you not. A glass of red wine per month raises your risk of heart of breast cancer by 30%. And I go, holy crap. And I had, I had just met Howard Jacobson that day, but we kind of like linked up and I lean over to Howard to go, what were those people eating? Like one glass of wine raises your, like, who knows? He grabs the microphone. And he goes, yeah. Interesting thing about almost every single blue zone in the entire world, every blue zone of people who have the, the most longevity, there's one through line. They all drink. And this is the point of like, it's a, I almost want to get away from this idea of vice. I call it mott most of the time. What your health and happiness is based on what you do most of the time. If you try to make it perfect, so-called perfect, if you try to hang on to a somewhat 
like never veering from the perfect, what you see as the perfect diet, you're going to cause yourself so much stress that it's going to be antithetical to the diet itself. And I've seen this time and time again, people who are holding on so tight that I've described it recently as like a powder cake. It's just ready to blow. SOS, no salt, no oil, no sugar. They use the word compliant. This isn't compliant. I'm like, what are we in a Star Trek episode? It's not compliant. Like we're not robots. And if you try to eat 100% perfect somehow, you're going to probably hold on so tight that you're going to blow out, you're going to burn out, you're going to overwhelm. Now, my point about this is to say I have vices. I love scotch whiskey. I've talked about scotch in both my podcasts. I will have a scotch while I'm doing my podcast. And I too, Jason, have gotten criticized for that. And I'm like, look, nobody in the modern world does things 100% naturally. Nobody, because you can try to eat the 100% perfect diet, but first of all, it's all farmed, so it's not even wild anyways. And second of all, you're also adjusting the heater in your house if you get a little bit too cold, little bit too cold and you adjust the heater if you're getting a little bit, you know, you're, we're, we're in this little pocket of comfort in so many areas we're driving places. I do too, but let's do the best we can. But to try to achieve in one area, the so-called perfect thing means usually you're going to sacrifice other parts of your life. So I am all about setting a most of the time and allowing yourself treats and fun. If I drank scotch every day, wouldn't be fun for me. One, number one, and two, it would tank my health. But if I have a scotch on a Saturday night, totally digging it. I'm 100% behind, behind it. And I don't even think it's a vice. I think it's part of living a life in a modern world that's a little nutty nut nut. And so having a drink with friends is freaking amazing and great. It's like nobody should apologize for that stuff. I'm finding more of an issue with people who think that, you know, having a little bit of oil is going to kill you. Sorry, it's not going to kill you. It's not going to kill you. Is it healthy? No, oil's not healthy. Lots of things we do are not healthy. So release some pressure and then just find a balance of how much you do those. So in a way, like coffee, in a way that doesn't tank you. If I drank coffee all day, I wouldn't sleep well. My health would fail. If I have a couple cups, that works for me. Jason, you're a little more sensitive to it. Probably no coffee works for you, but you made that decision about it, not because of a rule set by somebody else or by a book. And that's, to me, that's good living. I love that, Sid. And that's so in alignment with how Jason and I feel too. We've we've talked about this a lot on the show. And I step back and reflect on it because I've been there too. You know, I used to want to eat the perfect way, find the right way to eat and get super strict about it. And I also have a history with disordered eating. So I had to really step back and say, like, what exactly am I doing here? Because I think what you're describing feels a lot like disordered eating in some ways. This this desire to eat perfectly, to live perfectly, it does lead to burnout for many of us. If you want to live that way, if that brings you joy, great. But I also have an issue with as I said earlier, people trying to say that what works for them is going to work for everybody else. It's making things worse, I think, especially because disordered eating is a huge issue. I mean, you don't have to actually have an eating disorder to have disordered eating, in my opinion. A lot of us are obsessed with trying to get things right in life. And I think we are encouraged to do that through food. And, and a lot of that is part of capitalism, in my opinion. A lot of that is trying to get us to stick to something so we'll continue buying certain things. And you know, whether it's food or books or supplements or workout programs or whatever else, it's like 
if you take a step back, there's often somebody who's benefiting from convincing us that we have to do something a certain way. And that really affected me growing up and led to a big issue with disordered eating. So I, I really take a big stance on this. And people have even on the opposite end that they've, they've accused veganism as disordered eating. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like just leave people alone and let them make the decisions for their self is a huge thing that I believe in. But in order for people to make smart choices for themselves that work and whatever, however they define smart, they do need to feel less confused and they do need to feel more free to make those choices. And I think the more that we focus on restriction and, and, and positioning food as right or wrong, good or bad, healthy or unhealthy, I think is really not helping us because it just ends up to people feeling confused and people feeling afraid too. A lot of this control, I believe, is based in fear. The fear that if you don't make the right decision, that you're going to have to pay a consequence. The fear that we're all going to die someday and then maybe I can prevent it for as long as possible by controlling what I eat. But to your point, and I think one of the biggest points of all about being present is like we, none of us have that control. So if you want to have scotch and that truly makes you happy, then that is probably the best choice for you in that moment because it does make you happy. Now, to your point, Sid, if you're drinking scotch every day because it's a habit and it's not actually making you happy, you're just doing it because you are used to doing it, that's a different story. And I think, you know, the coffee conversation, to reiterate that, it's like coffee brings me so much joy. You know, like when we are, there's so much judgment in the coffee world too. Let's not forget. And this whole like, do you drink it black or not thing? It's like, ironically, the black and white thing, it's like, no, there's literally a gray area when you mix coffee together with with a milk. That's where I like to be in general in life. I like to be in that gray area. And part of the reason I like drinking my coffee with milk is because I love the nuances of the milks that I add. Like truly, it is Every single time I make a cup of coffee, regardless of milk, it's a different experience. As you know, Sid, that's part of the fun of coffee. It's it's never exactly the same in my experience. Even if you grind the beans the exact same way and you measure them out and you put like there's there's so many things. The water affects it. Everything affects coffee differently. And I find joy in adding milk to my coffee I enjoy the nuances. I enjoy the discovery process. But the sad thing is, Sid, is in the back of my head, I do think about how much milk am I at? Like, is this too many calories? Is there too much sugar? Is it, you know, like all of those things. And probably for me, it's because of my history with disordered eating. But I think it's also the result of these... um, approaches that many people take about right or wrong. I think about the packaging. I mean, I've I've made videos, Sid, encouraging people to switch out animal dairy for plant-based dairy. And I've had people come and attack me because the plant-based dairy is in packaging. Well, you know, you can make it yourself and that's the more eco-friendly route. And it's like this constant thing where 
this is going back to social media, Sid, and something that you are certainly missing out on for a good reason. Like going back to fear of missing out and how just because you're missing out on something doesn't mean it's bad. The good thing that you miss out on, Sid, is the constant criticism over every single thing you do. And all three of us know, and I'm sure the listeners have experienced this too, that you'll be focused on helping people with one thing. Like for me, hey, did you know you can swap this for that so that you can be plant-based? Did you know you can swap this or that so you can reduce your sugar intake? But every time I do something like that, someone picks apart something else. It's often packaging. It's like, oh, well, yeah, but you could make your own. And it's that yeah, but constantly that's so exhausting about social media. And that social media perpetuates this obsession with perfection. Yeah, that's 100% right. I mean, that, that I found a great piece by not being involved in that stuff. And, and honestly, the irony is that I think when you don't have that much noise, you actually get to think about stuff. I just did a video on intermittent fasting. And of course, what I and everyone, you know, it's, it's all the rage. And look, I do it f- food wise, but I actually made an argument that intermittent fasting for what I call mental nutrition, meaning we're... F- so much stuff because of social media, we're feeding our minds. I call it mental nutrition. So the food, physical nutrition is what we feed the food, but there's what we put in our heads. We should, I'm an advocate for intermittent fasting with that, meaning downtime, time you're not putting stuff in your head, time that you can actually process and think. It was too much noise. There's so much noise out there that we don't have moments to actually process the knowledge that we've understood and learned and understood. There's a lot of chatter going on. And I think to just shut ourselves off completely from that for at least periods of time daily, if possible, like we do to stop eating now and then, allows the business of the mind and body to be more efficient and more effective. And so I found that too, Whitney, like just it's like everybody don't let the perfection be the enemy of the good. You know, it's like that kind of thing. Like if you're going to go play, but but then what about packaging? Yeah, what about it? It's still way better. You know, it's still way better on, on all counts. So do what you can. And again, there's the ethic of self-care. I've been accused of being militant about food plenty of times because I'm plant-based, but I'll be drinking a scotch and people are like, you need to relax. And I'm like, what about me right now is not relax. You know, like I'm, (laughs) I'm at a party and I'm having a whiskey, like I'm in a great mood and you're going to say that I'm like uptight and I'm going what? And so I just want to make this one little point. And this is how I kind of, I think that if you're, and this is just, I'm t- talking about myself personally. I don't eat 100% healthy. So when somebody says I'm militant about food, I always find that could be very kind of funny because I don't eat 100% healthy. Like Jason was saying, like I have, we have vices and stuff, but I do eat 100% plant-based. And the reason I eat 100% plant-based has nothing to do with food. And this is where it gets complicated for people to kind of understand. I'm not militant about food because I don't eat 100% healthy food. I have vices and I relax about it so they don't have to bit, you know, hang on so tight. So I allow myself some treats now and then and on the balance, I eat well. But I am militant about not harming animals. That I am militant about that. I am militant about ethical thing. I also, when, I, I, when I'm on stage, I, jo- I make this joke. I go, look, everybody says everything in moderation, but here's something I don't even do in moderation. I don't even kill people in moderation. Not even a little bit. I always make that joke. It's like, I don't kill people, not even just a little bit. Like I'm militant about not killing people. So I think that when it comes to personal ethics, don't get food confused with an ethical decision. I don't harm animals needlessly on purpose. I don't, I'm sure, you know, I hit 
insects or on the way on, on a car ride, but I don't purposefully harm animals. I am militant about that, just in the way that I'm militant about not hurting people and just in the way I'm militant about not stealing. And so, yes, I am militant about those things, but don't make that mistake between that and me being militant about food because I'm not militant about food. It's a mindset to me that I want people to understand the difference between those two things. Don't confuse militancy around food with with an ethical decision that you, you that one might make. My issue, as I'm you know talking to thousands of people by this time, you guys too, is a militancy around food. To me, that's not ethical. Put this way, it does. It's, I've never met somebody who is super militant around food that I find particularly happy. And again, that could be my perception of them. I get it. But when I'm talking to somebody who is like measuring, counting, and weighing, super about food, super can't get you know e- veer off the highway even by like the minutest little bit, who is afraid of having a drop of oil. I don't look at that and say, "Wow, I want more of that." I go, "Whoa." You know, for me, I go, oh my gosh, that they look like they're holding on way too tight to that. It doesn't seem particularly a fun way to live. So that's kind of where I'm at on all that kind of stuff is, you know, you're out there just offering like, hey, try this plant-based milk and somebody's going to like take you to the mat because it's packed. They they caught you because it's packaging still. And it's like, whoa, you know, like... (laughs) everybody calm down a second, you know? And I just saw that so much in social media that I was like, I'm done. I don't, I don't need it. I don't want it. And I felt better for not having it. You know, Sid, I want you to leave us with one final gold nugget, which goes all the way back to the very beginning of this episode, which you teased of the most sustainable thing. I said, Oh, I said, Sid, is this the most sustainable thing you could do for your beauty? You said, no, it's the, most sustainable thing. So I don't want to leave the listeners on a cliffhanger anymore. We've had them on a cliffhanger for 90 minutes. What is this thing, Sid? What is this sustainable thing that that you have found that is the the uber sustainable, the pinnacle of sustainability? Please share it with us. Okay, well, real quick, when I said I was going to one-up your data thing, Whitney, is this ring. It's an aura ring. And so it's totally all about the freaking day. And that's not really my thing, but because of the breathing I'm doing, it tracks heart rate variability. So that's like, this is like the ultimate nerdy one ring to be the nerdiest of all. Okay. So that's that. I'm aware. And and thank you for reminding me because I'm going to add that to my list. I've been wanting to purchase one for a while. So I'm going to, that'll be up there on my next financial splurge. (laughs) <laughs> it was a birthday gift and I totally right now with the breathing part it, it's actually nice it, it tracks you know your resting heart rate and your heart rate variability and your deep sleep and things like that so it won't be a long-term thing I hope but it's kind of cool for me to track that as I've been transitioning my breathing anyways so the one sustainable thing I was telling Jason first of all when we got on the video I said I think in the time that we've seen each other all the hair transferred from my head to his head and so then, then that led us to the next to the next subject, which is the most sustainable thing. And please, everybody, take note. Get your pen and pencil out to take notes on this. Is to be bald. And here's why: because first of all, five minutes. I told Jason I use my wife's hair conditioner as my shaving cream. The whole head, boom, boom, boom. It's done. But if you if you quantify the amount of shampoo and conditioner I have saved over the last twenty years, the whole Amazon rainforest would be untouched. Look, that's an anecdote. And we've talked about that, but it's, I'm going to say it's true. Like most anecdotes, 
it's absolutely true. No deforestation with the amount of shampooing and conditioning I've saved. So I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there to your listeners. If you guys go bald, a lot of things get solved. This is good, Sid, because I actually have, have started to lose my hair in the back and have slowly started to freak out about it and haven't really talked. I've been freaking out. Like, I really have. I'm like, I like my hair. I enjoy having hair. I'm starting to slowly lose it. I'm not happy about it. So you've given me hope that that this could be a blessing from the hair gods that by losing my hair, I can actually decrease my footprint and actually save a hell of a lot of money. I'm actually curious, have you done the math over two decades of what you have saved by not purchasing shampoo and conditioner? And if you haven't, could you just throw out a wild number? Like how much money do you think you've saved? I have, I've never done the actual math on it. But I will tell you that it probably enabled me to buy that sauna. So that's probably how much I've saved. A whole sauna's worth of conditioner and shampoo. Well, damn. I mean, it's... I feel better. I feel better that, that you know, 10 years from now, if this is all... If I'm in the club, Sid, then maybe I can, in, you know, invest in my, I don't know, my Tesla Roadster or something. I've saved so much money in shampoo and conditioner. I bought a Tesla Roadster. We'll see. We'll see. The non-hair club for men is what I call it. I feel like there's an offshoot podcast in here somewhere. I love this topic, though, because it's so refreshing to hear men talk about, you know, any sort of insecurities around their bodies and aging. Because for me now, it's it's gray hair. It's like, oh, no, like, as the gray hair start to accumulate on my head, like, I'm just like, okay, am I going to keep it? Am I going to dye my hair? Like, what am I going to do? And like, every time I start thinking about that stuff, though. I wonder, why does this even matter? Legitimately, why do we care so much? And actually, there is a lot of data around hair being such an important part of our appearance, right? In terms of like how people perceive us. It makes sense that we get this concerned. But I've told Jason this before. It's like, I don't notice. Like, Sid, like, I don't really think that. I'm just like, all right. It's not like, whoa, like... I'm examining Sid to see if he's worthy of my attention. You know, like, no, I'm not trying to date either of you. And it's like, why does it matter? You know what I mean? Even if I was, because I've dated, you know, actually a lot of the men that I've dated have had some concern over going bald, losing their hair. You know, it's, it's something that has come up a lot in my dating life and Honestly, they always end up carrying so much more than I do. And so this is such an important reminder for everyone and and kind of a good note to end on because this really does tie into happiness. It's like, you know, personally, Sid, the, you know, you saying like the relief that you've had just going bald, I feel that way. Like I'm, I'm fairly sure that I'm just going to let my hair go gray and not dye it. I, I could be wrong. So don't hold me to it, but because I don't want to obsess over getting my hair dyed all the time. That sounds like such an awful way to live for me. Some women, I think, really like getting their hair done. I have never liked getting my hair done. I get my hair done every nine months at the most. Like I might move to six months because my hairdresser is like, oh, you went a little too long this time. <laughs> but, but honestly, like it's just such an afterthought for me. And I think it's really sad that we get so obsessed with like how much hair we have and what color our hair is, how long is it, how it's styled, like all these factors. And to your point, Sid, certainly a lot of those decisions aren't even good for the environment or our long-term health. Like 
every shampoo and conditioner has an effect. It's it's the packaging, it's the ingredients, it's what are the ingredients doing for the planet? What are the ingredients doing for our bodies? What's the packaging doing for us? Like how much does it cost? Like there's so much involved with just buying shampoo, like that decision alone. Then you add in the costs of getting a nice haircut. You add in the cost or in the effects of getting your hair dyed often the fumes, the ingredients, the waste, you know, all that stuff. What if we just went simpler? So I'm not going to shave my head, but I might let my hair go gray and just not worry about it. Yeah. My wife let her hair go silver gray. I love it. She gets complimented on all the time. I mean, she just let it, let it go. I, I will tell you, like, I'm, I'm obviously joking about people going bald, but at the point that I started losing my hair, I was like, good, we're good. Boop, done. I got a clippers out, shaved my head, and I never looked back. It was like the easiest the easiest decision, so low maintenance. And as a small stepper, I think in moments. And so the less I have to do with hair care is all a bonus. And so it's like every few days I shave in five minutes and I'm on my way. And I actually value that time saved and money saved. Like I, I think that that's real stuff. So maybe you can people can kind of use that mindset for other areas that they can shave a little bit of time off and free up more time for other cool stuff. So that's just a decision I made, but uh, you know, Jason. Pun intended, right? Like shave a little time off. <laughs> Jason, I think you'd probably look cool going bald. It would just be something to get used to. But honestly, Sid, like I'm used to that look for you. Like I actually don't remember you having hair. Like it's just like, this is what you look like. And I accept it you know, and hopefully we can do more of that in our lives. And I love even that note that you said about your wife, like hearing that from a man is I think really important too. And like, we get so afraid of what people are going to think that we even, we don't even realize that somebody actually might prefer us the way that we look naturally. What if we spend all this time and money and resources trying to change our appearance when either somebody doesn't care or perhaps they prefer us looking the way that we naturally are. And that contributes to all of our happiness. So maybe we're, we're doing ourselves and others a disservice by trying to con- change and control ourselves too much. I think there's some wisdom to be had there. And I think that, I mean, I aesthetically like my the way I think my wife is gorgeous and I, I love the hair the, the way that is. But I also like the fact that she, I like that part of her that said, I'm freaking letting myself go gray. There's a sexiness there too. So I'm just, just, I'm just throwing, I'm just throwing it out there that I kind of like that. She was like, yeah, I'm not freaking dealing with this, you know, and she take, she looks great. You know, she's, she maintains herself, but she just didn't care about that. And I kind of like that she didn't care about it, you know? So that was a kind of a value thing there that I, that I dug and we've been married 26 years, you know, so something's working anyways. I really liked that. And, and it's kind of cool that way. So anyways, I didn't realize that I actually am grayer. If you look back about four or five videos back, maybe a little more, I let my beard grow out and it was like full on Santa gray. So it was kind of, I was like, whoa, cause I just don't know. Cause I shave. I don't know if I'm gray or not. And I definitely am. Jason, do not shave your head until we, maybe we do a video where you shave your head and we w- don't shave it without checking with me first. Cause I want to be there for you when you do it the first time. Okay. I want to be there for you. We'll do it on video or live or something. Why? I just want to plant that seed. Okay. The last thing that I have for this episode, okay, is I don't know when that point is, right? Because everyone's got that point of like, oh, do I want to do the comb over in the middle stage or like hell with it? There's no middle stage. I'm starting to lose it. It's going. I'm not quite there yet, okay? But if 
I think I'll know if I get to that point of just like, nope, no middle stage, no comb over, no toupee, it's gone. I'm not there yet, but I think that that everyone has that point. And you said you got to that point, Sid, where you're like, nope, no middle stage, it's starting to go, goodbye, right? Is that accurate? You didn't have a middle stage. No, no, no middle stage. It was like, I, oh, good Lord, this is here. So this is happening. Boom, I'm moving on. I'm just saying, I'm not pressuring you. I'm saying, if you get to that point, I want to be there for you. That's all I'm saying. If you ever get to that point, I want to be there for you. Okay. I will put that invitation, that sticky note on my board. So I'll keep you updated. I mean, obviously we reconnected on the podcast for a reason, because I think the last time we physically saw each other was when Whitney and I came up to visit at the Stanford Inn back in 2012. So we've kept in touch through email, and obviously you were a great contributor to our Take Charge series, which we will link to in the show notes at our website, which is wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. About two years ago, Sid contributed an amazing interview with some great insights to that Take Charge series, which we'll link to in the show notes in the transcript for this episode at our website. And speaking of links, everything we mentioned today, from Cal Newport's books to any of the articles, any of the continued education resources, you will also find those links in the show notes. And of course, we will link to all of Sid's great books, including his newest one, which is called Six Truths, Live by These Truths and Be Happy. He also wrote Raising Healthy Parents and Approaching the Natural. And of course, we will link to his podcast, What Sid Thinks. So you, dear listener, can dive into his hilarious and heartfelt approach to wellness and good living. Sid, you're amazing. This was such a wonderful reconnection, and we absolutely just adore you, man. We, we love your approach, and uh, we love the energy you bring to this conversation. And, and thanks for adding so much value and love here on the podcast today. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure to be here. You know, I'm a huge fan of you guys and, and always keeping it up with what you're doing and you're doing such good work. And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, allowing me to hang out with you guys. And I hope we reconnect physically at some point soon that we cross paths somewhere, somehow. And in the meantime, take care of yourselves. And I'm going to send you both Nutty Nut Nut t-shirts. Just, I just put that on record. So you just got to let me know where to send them. And they're organic cotton. They're coming to you. All right. I can't wait for this. Wow. Well. It's a good encouragement for our listeners to check out our YouTube channel so you can keep an eye out for when we start wearing the shirts. Because I, I guarantee Jason will wear it one day, even accidentally. He won't even be thinking about it. One day he'll just happen to be wearing it. And I'm going to call him out on our YouTube channel, putting it out there. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.